Mr. Street. We now switch to having the privilege and pleasure of listening to His Royal Highness Prince Turkey Al Faisal, if he would come forward, please. Turkey, unbeknownst to many here, perhaps most, was born within 24 hours of the famous historic meeting between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Prince Turkey's grandfather, born on February the 15th, 1945. And Ray Close is here, whose relative, Colonel Eddie, was the translator for that particular meeting between those two heads of state that set one of the cornerstones for the Saudi Arabian-US relationship ever since. And Selwa Roosevelt is here as well, speaking of the Roosevelt uh, family there that have long been interested in America's relations with the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. Prince Turkey did his elementary school work in Taif, Saudi Arabia, lovely place in the mountains, elevated with healthier air than many places below anywhere in the world. Also at the Lawrenceville School, a famous uh, outside of Princeton, uh, New Jersey, and further studies at Georgetown University. Uh, he and I were students at the same time that a guy by the name of William Jefferson Clinton was a student there. And outsiders, knowing that, think that we were all pals and hung around together. We really didn't see each other or hang around together. That was just a coincidence, an accident. And growing up out of town language, it was a, a fluke of fate. Prince Turkey uh, came back to be appointed a special advisor in the uh, uh, Royal Palace. And in 1977, became the Director General of the General uh, Intelligence uh, Directorate a post that he held to the year 2000. He was appointed ambassador of Saudi Arabia to the court of St. James in London, subsequently ambassador to the United States. And as in his post-ambassadorial duties, he's been the chairman of the King Faisal Center for Islamic Studies and Research. His Royal Highness Prince, Prince Turkey. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa salatu wa salam ala afdal mursaleen Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Ambassador Smith, when he was addressing you, he was commenting on uh, being the speaker just before Sesame Street as an introduction to them. Well, I lament the fact that I am following Sesame Street. <laughs> but nonetheless, Mr. Ming, thank you very much for all you've done with your colleagues in bringing people together, especially children. And Robert Lacey, thank you for the words that you had for me. I'd recommend to you, ladies and gentlemen, another book that he wrote, which I liked very much, which is called The Year 1000. It's uh, an account of the year 1000 AD in uh, the British Isles. And he went through the trouble of collecting not just documents 
but uh, court, uh, court rulings and visited all of the sites that uh, he wrote about in those aisles. And it really was a very inspirational book. Um, I had told him that I would write a similar book about the year 1000 Hijri in, in, in Muslim uh, calendar. Alas, I haven't gotten around to it. But, uh, and commenting on previous uh, commentators in the, in the forum here, um, I was uh, very much impressed with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Muppets. Uh, and uh, the fact that uh, these were the genuine Muppets uh, that bring laughter and, uh, and fun for everybody. And, but unfortunately, as one of the commentators here reminded us earlier, that there are live human Muppets in Washington, D.C. <laughs> who are run by IPAC. Um, unfortunately, what they bring is war and tragedy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the theme of this conference, uh, one other word before I begin. A uh, friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine, when I showed them the speech that I was going to give today, wanted me instead, as they said, to be princely and not to deliver the speech that I wrote. Uh, alas, uh, being princely is something that I don't know how one can measure. Uh, but uh, I think genuineness is, is, a, is a theme that is much more appropriate to what I'm going to say rather than princely. And the theme of this conference is much too grand for me to presume to cover all of it. I confine my talk to the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. As before, the two countries agree on many issues, but they disagree on others. We agree on world peace, on removing the curse of nuclear weapons, on eradicating poverty and disease, on providing justice for all, and many others. We disagree, however, on method, style, language, and perception, sometimes. Peace and nuclear disarmament are cases in point. We agree on the two-state solution in the Middle East, on a viable Palestinian state, and on Israel living in peace with all of its neighbors. Saudi Arabia, ladies and gentlemen, brought all of the 22 Arab countries and all of the 57 Muslim countries and the rest of the world to accept King Abdullah's peace initiative as the end game of negotiations between Israel and the Arab countries whose lands it still occupies. The United States, which considers that initiative as a cornerstone for peace, has not managed to bring Israel to accept the Abdullah Peace Initiative in any form. And while the previous Israeli government mumbled words like important, constructive, and helpful in reference to the initiative, the present government in Israel has been conspicuously silent about it. Saudi Arabia brought Hamas and Fatah together in the Mecca Agreement on terms where Hamas confirmed its delegation of the PLO as the sole Palestinian spokesman on peace in negotiations. The United States, under the previous administration, purposefully set out to sabotage that agreement with success. 
Saudi Arabia has continued to provide the Palestinian Authority with money and political support to Batras Abu Mazen, the United States, which is thankfully the largest contributor to the Palestinian Authority's budgetary needs. Yet, it has failed to curb the brutal Israeli policy of collective punishment, arbitrary arrests, and killings, even in the A-zone, illegal colonization, the merciless Israeli bulldozing of Palestinian homes, and the inhuman Israeli practice of uprooting Palestinian olive trees, for God's sake. Because of that, Abu Mazen's credibility with his people has been degraded to its lowest level. Saudi Arabia agreed with other Arab states to give peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine a chance, more than once, under the United States negotiated partial colony freeze. The United States failed to stick to its assurances and to add insult to injury, offered the Netanyahu government more money, arms, protection from UN sanction, and shamefully, the stationing of Israeli troops on Palestinian territory, as if this territory were part of the United States' sovereign lands. And this was to get him to extend the partial freeze for a few more days. Now that the Netanyahu government has rejected that offer, we're waiting to see what else the United States will offer. Saudi Arabia has worked to bring harmony and political cohesion to Lebanon. The Taif agreement between all the Lebanese political factions is the result of Saudi action. A month ago, King Abdullah brought with him President Assad to Beirut to help the Lebanese political factions to overcome their differences. They met last week to review the situation, indicating their pursuit to overcome the difficulties faced by Lebanon. The kingdom has been calling for the removal of Israeli troops from occupied Lebanese lands. That removal will also remove with it from Lebanon the rationalization of the national liberation slogan that Hezbollah uses to maintain its armed militia and disrupt Lebanese civil and political reconciliation. We've just witnessed the most palpable demonstration of that slogan during the Iranian president's visit to Lebanon. The United States overlooks the importance of this issue and won't even consider calling on Israel to adhere to all the United Nations Security Council resolutions calling for the withdrawal of Israeli troops from Lebanon. Saudi Arabia has supported Syria's efforts despite continued Israeli expansion of colonies on the Golan Heights to negotiate with Israel, whether under the aegis of the US or Turkey. The US has not pushed Israel to do so. Saudi Arabia has continued to give political and moral support to bring peace and harmony to Iraq. During the last administration's disastrously bloody conduct of that occupation of Iraq, the kingdom was the first country to send humanitarian aid, including a field hospital to tend to Iraqis in Baghdad. The kingdom was the first in bringing together the contiguous countries of Iraq to discuss how to help the Iraqis overcome their difficulties. The kingdom was the first to bring together all the Iraqi political factions under the roof of the Arab League to discuss political reconciliation. In August 2004, the Saudi Foreign Minister proposed to then Secretary Powell to replace US and other troops with Arab and Muslim forces. Alas, he never received an answer. 
Would that have solved the problems of Iraq today? Perhaps. But we shall never know. Now, the kingdom keeps an equal distance from all Iraqi factions. Saudi Arabia works for and supports the establishment of an Iraqi government that represents all of the Iraqi people. The US has committed itself to withdraw from Iraq next year, according to the wishes of the Iraqi people. I suggest that before they leave, that Mizrais seek a United Nations Security Council resolution under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter, guaranteeing the territorial integrity of Iraq. This is the only way, ladies and gentlemen, to avoid civil war, ethnic cleansing, or the disintegration of Iraq. Internal political ambitions will be checked, and external territorial ambitions will be stymied. Saudi Arabia supports the Afghan government of President Hamid Karzai. It has hosted meetings between his government and the Taliban. It has provided financial and humanitarian aid to the Afghan people. King Abdullah has publicly promised continued aid. And who has President Karzai turned to in seeking to end the fighting in Afghanistan? He turned to Saudi Arabia. During and after the London conference, the president specifically asking Abdullah to help the Afghan people to come together. I have frequently proposed that the United States should bring together Russian Federation, China, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom and Egypt to put together a boots on the ground campaign to eradicate Al-Qaeda, with each country providing its best capabilities, whether financial, military, political, or intelligence. And chase Bin Laden and al Dawahiri in the borderlands of Pakistan and Afghanistan. And once they are captured or killed, then victory can be declared and the troops withdrawn from Afghanistan. That is the only credible way for the United States and NATO to justifiably withdraw their troops from there. The Afghan people don't want to return to the rule of Mullah Omar. The foreign invader today, however, draws their enmity and anger. Without that, the Taliban will have to contend with the reckoning of the Afghan people. The US has declared that it will begin withdrawing next year. It continues to broadcast its military intentions with the aim, presumably, of getting the civilians out of the combat zones. I am no military expert, but I have read that surprise is the biggest element of success in any military campaign. That is precisely what the insurgency in Afghanistan achieves. Every time they ambush a patrol or detonate an IED or explode a suicide bomber, surprise accomplishes success. In Pakistan, Saudi Arabia has supported that country financially and politically. The kingdom shares intelligence and skills in combating Al-Qaeda with Pakistan. Here also, the kingdom keeps an equal distance from all Pakistani politicians. But ladies and gentlemen, as long as the United States continues its predator attacks on Pakistanis, no matter how many Taliban or Al-Qaeda members they eliminate, the results are inevitably counterproductive. The collateral damage in human lives and Pakistani national pride is far greater than the benefits. On nuclear disarmament, 
The kingdom is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It has publicly endorsed the aim of a world free of nuclear weapons. At the recent review of the treaty, the MPT Treaty, the kingdom, along with all the Arab states, called for a zone free of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. I have called for a United Nations Security Council resolution to set up that zone with an incentive regime that rewards the countries that join economically and technically should they wish to acquire peaceful nuclear energy and the nuclear security umbrella to protect them from any nuclear or conventional military threats. The resolution should also include a sanctions regime that economically and politically boycotts any country that does not join. And more crucially, it would militarily sanction any country that develops or seeks to develop nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Having military teeth will ensure the success and viability of that resolution. Saudi Arabia has called on Iran to be more vocal in supporting the establishment of the zone free of weapons of mass destruction, rather than to follow their present provocative policy of nuclear enrichment. The US under President Obama has made universal disarmament its goal. It has thankfully pushed forward on all issues of nuclear disarmament. The Gang of Four and other distinguished American institutions and individuals have publicly endorsed that view, creating a momentum in the public sphere that has not been seen since the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed. This is all good and well. But, and there is always a but in US policy and practice when it comes to Israel. When the review conference declared its support for the establishment of a zone free of weapons of mass destruction, the United States supported the declaration. But, and here it is ladies and gentlemen, the US also declared that the declaration is premature and will require more discussion. The US, Russia, Egypt, and the United Nations were designated as custodians of the proposal by the conferees to arrange for a conference next year to deal with this issue. Instead of using that proposal to incentivize Israel to conclude peace with her neighbors, the US, by word and deed, voided it of any value, leaving it up to the whims and ambitions of an already nuclear-armed Israel, whether the zone will be established or not. Conclusions. Saudi Arabia has had a clear view of where it is going and how to get there. In 1981, the late King Fahad issued what came to be known as the Fahad Peace Plan, in which he called for the establishment of a Palestinian state in the occupied territories which were seized by Israel in 1967. He also called for the recognition of the de facto borders of all countries prior to June 4, 1967, which meant for the first time recognition by all the Arab states of Israel in pre-1967 borders. All the Arab countries agreed to the plan. Israel, on the other hand, did not even say that it heard of it. The US totally ignored it. Skipping the tragedies of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, the continued Lebanese civil war which was brought to an end by Saudi action, as I mentioned before, 
the Iraq-Iran war, the withdrawal of Soviet troops from Afghanistan, thanks to joint Saudi-American-Pakistan Mujahideen action, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and subsequent liberation, thanks to Saudi-American action, the Madrid talks, thanks to Saudi-American action, the Oslo agreements and the initial euphoria, which was alas deflated by the assassination of an Israeli prime minister by an Israeli terrorist who publicly stated that he was inspired at the time by the rhetoric of the present Israeli prime minister. The officially published stripping of bin Laden of his Saudi citizenship and his departure from Sudan to Afghanistan where he was given refuge by the Taliban. The first terrorist act by Al-Qaeda at the Saudi Arabian National Guard building in Riyadh, drawing the first blood in its continuous campaign against the kingdom and her friends. The subsequent efforts of the then newly elected Prime Minister of Israel, Netanyahu, you can see him on YouTube promising to derail the Oslo Accords. The Camp David talks and Taba talks, Accords, the elections of both George W. Bush and Ariel Sharon, one with the aim of turning his back to the Middle East, the other with the aim of destroying the nascent Palestinian Authority. Then Crown Prince Abdullah's letter to President Bush, alerting him to the dire and probable bloody consequences of ignoring the Palestinian issue. The vicious and cowardly attacks of September 11, 2001. America's anger and hurt at the loss of human life and her need for succor and support from the world community. Saudi Arabia's soul searching and introspection in dealing with the reality of that criminally inhuman act. Saudi Arabia's continued resolve to meet the Al-Qaeda challenge, head on by police work and by educational and cultural revisions of where we were and where we want to go. While working to overcome the psychological and political difficulties of having fingers pointed at us from everywhere, King Abdullah boldly decided to cleanse Saudi society of any stains of stigma of extremist thought by overturning our educational system, religious discourse, and cultural practice. He publicly declared his opposition to any rationalization of extremism, and he guided religious discourse to the middle way. The national dialogue had been established a few years before, and his direction led it to openly discuss terrorism, human rights, women's rights, and all of the culturally difficult issues that any conservative society like Saudi Arabia faces. It is a typical Saudi method of confronting controversial issues by public discussion in public audiences, or as we call them, majlis, as we call it. Only now, it is done in front of television cameras and involves men and women, old and young. Internally, the king has galvanized all Saudi citizens in this public airing on where they stand. And the kingdom's successes in bringing down Al-Qaeda has made it the premier dismantler of that evil cult. By 2002, when he had set the agenda internally, he then moved on the international sphere with his peace initiative. And in, 19, in 2008, he proposed a dialogue between cultures by first bringing Muslim religious leaders of all denominations to agree on how to address the issues that bring the other faiths and cultures together. 
Then he carried their message to Madrid, where representatives of all faiths and cultures endorsed his call and delegated to him the carrying of that message to the meeting of heads of state, prime ministers, and representatives from all the countries in the United Nations. The king continues in his pursuit of peace and prosperity for all, regardless of faith and color. And while admitting that Saudi Arabia still has a long way to go before achieving the full aims of his endeavors, nevertheless, he set the bar very high. The sweat and toil of all Saudis will bear him right. The King Abdullah University for Science and Technology, which is a marvel of his communal thinking, bears witness that he not only speaks, but he acts on what he says. The more than 30,000 Saudi students who study today in American universities bear witness to Saudi Arabia's will and determination to continue the strong and fruitful relations with the United States. Not only because it is America that has shown the capability to bring Israeli craven ambition to heel in many instances, as in forcing Ben-Gurion to withdraw from the Sinai after the Suez War in 1956, brokering the Camp David Accords in 1979, lifting the Israeli siege of Beirut in 1982, forcing Yitzhak Shamir to come to the Madrid Conference in 1991, but also because the United States has been a beacon of goodwill and progress to the rest of humanity and will continue to be so. However, and there is always a however as well when dealing with the United States, there has grown over the years a web of very tight and strong strings that bind the US to her client state, Israel. When Israel talks about economic, scientific, and even military successes that they have, the American role is hardly mentioned. Even today, as the people of the United States reel under the heel of the worst recession, more money, know-how, and economic advantage is ceded to Israel by the American people. Within the makeup of this administration, ladies and gentlemen, there are officials who rationalize, excuse, and condone Israeli intransigence while seeking to put more pressure on the Palestinians to concede even more. These same officials, believe that the Palestinian problem is not the root cause of Arab and Muslim antagonism to the United States. It is these officials who propose that the Netanyahu government should be rewarded for its intransigence rather than sanctioned. In the public sphere, there are journalists who view, whose view is so distorted by the neoconservative mantle, or as I call it, burqa, that they were that they cannot see that the call for independence from Middle East oil is a canard that defrauds the average consumer of energy by promising him clean energy, which is non-existent, and to pay a higher price for that energy, regardless of the abundant availability of the secure source of energy which comes from the Middle East and at a cheaper price. To these media pundits, ladies and gentlemen, who want Saudi Arabia to do more. I say that we have done more to further the cause of peace than any other country. That we have stood up to the challenge of terrorist nihilism promoted in the name of Islam and cast its cult and ethos to destruction. 
that we will continue to push for a more just application of American policy and practice in our part of the world. That Israel is a drain on the United States and not an asset. That foreign policy should follow national interest and not that of moneyed political lobbyists and journalist hacks. Yesterday, my friend Ambassador Fraker remarked during this conference that in this town, there are so many experts on everything. To which I replied that I'm therefore puzzled at how your government gets it wrong on most issues in our part of the world. When we are asked, ladies and gentlemen, to put in practice what the Arab Peace Initiative calls for in order to reassure Israel of our good intentions, I reply by asking, how about getting Israel to accept the initiative? When there is the demand that Israeli soldier, Shalit, should be released immediately, I say, how about the 10,000 Palestinian prisoners incarcerated by Israel in camps without trial and without legal representation? The Arab world has chosen the path of peace. Let Israel join us in that path. And may the blessings of Allah be upon us all. Thank you. present to the King Faisal Center for Islamic Studies and Research. Uh, but if you listen to the words for which uh, this award is given, you'll, you'll see the multifaceted uh, contributions and creativity and positive consequences of that center. This Cultural Achievement Award is presented to the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies for deepening the understanding of Arab Islamic heritage, encouraging creative artistry, promoting intellectual inquiry, bridging cultural tradition, and the study of contemporary issues affecting Saudi Arabia, the Arab, and the Islamic worlds, and enhancing dialogue, understanding, and cooperation among civilizations, nations, and peoples. Thank you very much, Dr. Anthony, for this wonderful award. I'm reminded, ladies and gentlemen, in receiving this award of an interview that the late King Faisal gave a day before his death to an American television station in which he was asked, how do you see Saudi Arabia in 50 years? His reply was, I see Saudi Arabia as a wellspring, wellspring of radiance to humanity. And this is what this award means to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.